0: It is so good to see each of you this morning. I appreciate your presence. Uh, we've got a a good number today and I really uh, am encouraged by that. And uh, I know that you are too. If you would please open your Bibles to Luke 15. We're going to notice verses 11 through 13 this morning. Luke writes, and he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his sustenance with riotous living. Have you ever been on a long journey? Perhaps to a grandparent's home or visit uh, to a family member that lives some distance away. I can recall growing up that from time to time we would make a trip up to Dayton, Ohio. My father had some family. They had moved up there after the death of his father. My grandmother moved up there to seek work and was there for a good while. His brothers stayed. And so from time to time we would make that long journey. Uh, at that time i believe it was probably some 6 or 7 hours from my home and that doesn't seem too long to me today but that is extremely long for a young person isn't it when we when we think about journeys we've all been on a journey perhaps we left home to continue our education and uh it was a good way from home maybe we left home to embark upon some kind of a career and we left home for that. Now, it may not have been long in regard to miles, but it can still be a long journey. There was once a young man several years ago who undertook a long journey. You may remember his name. You may recall him. He was a Canadian by the name of Terry Fox. He was a one-legged runner, and he was from Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, and he made a lasting impression upon the people of Canada and across the world with his heroic efforts. He was an outstanding athlete. He was uh, uh, he had a stubborn and competitive spirit. But at the age of nineteen, he lost his leg to cancer. And of course, his response to that was, "Nobody will ever be able to say." or call me a quitter. So having understood that, the young man decided that he would run across Canada. And so on April the 12th, 1980, Terry Fox began his trek from uh, St. John's Newfoundland, and he began to run across Canada. He called that run the Marathon of Hope. His idea or his uh, His desire was to raise $1 million for cancer research. And so he began his long run, and of course his prosthetic leg was very painful for him to run with it on. He endured all sorts of traffic problems, hot weather, wet weather, all kinds of weather that might interfere, and the young man kept running. But by the time he reached Ontario a journey of 3,339 miles, a marathon of 26 miles per day for 143 days, word of his achievement began to spread. People began to follow him and began to cheer him on and and watch his progress. And all of a sudden, he began to have flocks of people following after him as he made his trek across Canada. His spirits soared, and he succeeded in his ambition to raise money for cancer research, but he didn't just raise one million dollars. He raised one dollar for every Canadian, and that was 24 million, a little more. And so he was very successful. But the Marathon of Hope ended near Thunder Bay, Ontario, On September the 1st, 1980, the cancer had spread to his lungs and following the day he ran his last 24 miles, he was unable to run anymore after that. And when cancer finally claimed his life in 1981, Canada mourned the loss of one one of its finest heroes. Now that was a tremendous journey. The marathon, Marathon of Hope further than the United States is wide. What a journey. But it still isn't the longest journey. There's a much longer journey in which we involve ourselves and in which we must involve ourselves. And each of us sitting here today have done that. We have involved ourselves in such a journey. And when we obey the gospel plan of salvation and we become Christians, we embark before we do that, up on a journey. We find one illustration of that same kind of journey in Luke 15. Now, when we look at the passage, and of course we're talking about this uh, parable that the Lord gave, and we look at that passage of parables and we consider the The parable of the sheep and the parable of the coin and then, of course, of the lost son. And someone maybe were to ask us, in one word, describe the topic of those parables. Well, I don't know. What would we say? Sheep, coins, sons? Well, each of those are within these parables, but I don't believe that that's what exactly it's about. Someone might say, well, it's about salvation. Well... I think we see salvation in each of those three parables. After all, the sheep was found, the coin was found, and the lost son came home. But I still don't believe that that is exactly the key word we want to look at, at least in this sermon this morning. I believe the topic of this amazing chapter has got to be sinners. Sinners. God is interested in sinners. Notice that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19, verse 9. I think we can look at this topic this morning and we can say that the idea behind these three parables is sinners. Now the first two verses of this chapter, Luke 15, I believe sets the stage and serves as an introduction to all three parables, but especially to the third parable. Notice what is said. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now we learn in these first two verses who the audience is, the anticipation or their anticipation to hear what's being said, who the enemy to the Lord is, and the evil intent that he received at their hands. Of course, it is to the Pharisees and the scribes to whom this parable is addressed, really. And it is so easy when we look at this illustration and, and the great adjectives used, and it's just almost as if it jumps off of the page, it's easy to get caught up and lose the intent of the parable. What was Jesus doing? Was He talking about sheep and coins and lost boys? Well, He was, but what was His main purpose? He wanted to restore the nation of Israel back to God so they could be in fellowship with Him. Look, Jesus did not hate Israel. He loved His brethren, though they mistreated Him. The apostles, they did not come to destroy The law, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, He came to fulfill it. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He had a great love for His brethren, the Israelites, and He wanted to restore to fellowship Israel and God. And so that's the main point. We need to kind of keep that in the the back of our minds. You know, when we read verses 11 through 13 in our chapter... We are stunned by the journey that the lost son took into sin. When we read verse 17, we're struck by the journey that he took into himself. And then as we follow that up with verse 20, we become thrilled at the journey that he took back home. There's a lot of journeying going on here, a lot of traveling happening, a lot of things taking place, a lot of adjectives being thrown around. The illustration is... uh beyond compare. And I believe there's probably thousands of sermons that can be founded in this one parable. But we're going to focus on the longest journey that this young man took. Isn't it the journey into self that gives us the most trouble? It is enjoyable to journey into sin, even for a little while. Hebrews 11, verse 25. And after having been decimated by that same sin, it is a relief to journey home, isn't it? It's a relief to be able to come out of that, to have that stain washed from us, and to return home. That's a relief. However, when the bad consequences hit, things begin to happen it is difficult to take the longest journey into ourselves. Why is that? You know, the nation of Israel as a whole needed to take that very journey. They needed to look into self. They needed to understand something. And they needed to return to God, but they chose not to do that. They chose to reject Him. Now, there are many today, and we can make great application in today's life, By reading this account, when we read this parable, we can make present-day application to our own lives as we make that long journey into returning to God. Now, I want us to begin our longest journey this morning, and I want us to notice and start with the words that Christ spoke. Almost immediately, we're going to notice a contrast. Notice what Jesus said, And when He came to Himself, Luke 15, 17, When he came to himself, that shows the beginning of the longest journey. So we have a contrast between being lost in sin and coming to the realization that I need to make that longest journey and get out of that sin. That's a great contrast. Now it appears to me that time spent with the pigs allowed this young man to come to a proper understanding of exactly who he was, where he was, and where he needed to be. He had gone so far and had sunk so low that the only company he could keep was a herd of swine, and that's only because they had no choice. They couldn't choose not to keep company with him. I want us to notice that these six words are so powerful, and they strike at the very individual nature of each of us. And when they are combined, they demonstrate something. They demonstrate just how important... These words are to this parable. If it were not for these six words, and when he came to himself, the parable would have ended at verse 16. And what a tragedy that would have been, right? For it to have ended at verse 16. We learn just how important each word of God's inspired message is. Each one of them. Not a single word in God's message is there by mistake. Not a single word is there because someone decided to add something to it. Now, we have translations of copies that that has happened to. But we are fortunate, and through the providence of God, we have copies, translations of copies that are uh, valuable to us and that we can lean upon and trust. We learn just how important, though, God's words are. Think about the 28 words in Genesis 3.15 that that we have. The Bible would have ended at Genesis 3.14 had those words not been spoken. Had God not come before Adam and Eve, and had He not delivered the punishment that would come to Adam and Eve for their mistakes, and the punishment that was going to fall upon the serpent, Satan, had he not given that veiled prophecy of Jesus' coming, the history of man would have ended in Genesis 3.14. But God's words are important. And so they didn't end there. And we need to understand that it is a long journey when we go to enter into self and we begin to understand some things about ourselves, but we also must understand that we must begin it immediately. We must begin it as soon as we realize that we have committed sin. We need to do something about that. What if this young man had died while wasting his sustenance in riotous living? What would have happened? Well, we wouldn't have had that those six words, and when He came to Himself. It would have been over at that point. And when one takes the journey into sin, he never really knows if he's going to be able to come out of it. Right? We never know if we're going to have time to journey into self. Because we're not guaranteed anything in this life. Well, hopefully we can come to ourselves. We understand that the Lord is long-suffering, 2nd Peter 3, verse 9, but his patience will run out. He comes to a point, we learned that in uh, the book of Genesis, especially when we get to Genesis chapter 6, that his patience had run out and he was going to punish the world for not living in a godly manner. And so he had given those people an additional 120 years to make that longest journey into self. They chose not to do it, so he destroyed the world with water. Noah and his family were the only ones... That came forth. The ones that were saved. Fortunately for this young man, he came to himself. Now it is commonly agreed upon by Greek authorities and Hebrew authorities that this phrase means, and when he came to his senses. When he came, when he, when he got back in line with what normal thinking ought to be, what proper thinking ought to be, he came to his senses. I think we could paraphrase that statement and it would not hurt the text if we said when he realized how foolish he had been, he came to his senses. It seems that he had been as far from himself as he had been from home. And now it was time to take that journey. Now the contrasts continue though. By coming to himself, it appears that prior to... Losing his mind, he was a very rational young man. And he was sensible. And he was uh, willing to behave in such a way that he needed to behave. And at the point of recognition, he came back to himself. When he stopped involving himself. Also, the phrase indicates that he had to make a journey to get to himself. Right? He had to take a long journey into himself, but he had to get there first. He had to come to himself. Just because he came to himself doesn't mean that he had fully began his journey or completed it. We can understand that something is wrong and still not take measures to correct it. He had to engage in a struggle, and it ultimately saved his life, both physically and spiritually. We know that he returned to his right mind by three recorded statements that he made. He said, I perish, I have sinned, and I am no more worthy, Luke 15, 17 through 19. See, we see that the boy had been insistent, he had been impatient, and he had been irresponsible. Notice that he wanted his inheritance, he wanted it right now, and then when he got it, he wasted it. That kind of sounds like young people, doesn't it? I know that at least it sounds like me when I was a younger man. But he did wake, though, from his insanity. So he came to himself. We go from the words of Jesus to the idea that this young man did wake and he came to realize that sin is reckless. Sin is reckless. When we look at the world's views, they understand and they believe that when we do not engage in certain activities that we are being reckless. After all, look what you're missing out on. All these wonderful things that the world has to offer and you do not imbibe or partake in any of them? That seems like reckless behavior to them. But the fact that he did come to himself indicates that living in sin is insanity. It is insane. It is not something that, people with a proper mindset would do because we understand that the result of living in sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Now isn't it a wonderful lesson to represent repentance as the return to sound mind and consciousness? Being conscientious about what God would have us to be. The wild man of the Gadarenes is depicted as someone being out of his mind because of the things that Satan had done, Luke 8, 26 through 35. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9, 3 that madness is in the heart of the sons of men. That's that's insanity, that's craziness. It's not having a sound mind, right? And when we allow that madness to overtake our lives, there's only one result, and of course that result is ruin. Solomon described the sleeping sinner as a sluggard that needs to wake up, Proverbs six verse nine. The Roman brethren were encouraged by Paul. Notice what he said, Romans 13 verse 11. He said, "Awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed." Romans 13:11. See, the idea is you're you're not thinking clearly. How many of us have awakened at night and still half asleep and not understanding about the, the surroundings in which we are? We're a little bit confused. I can recall one time I had uh, taken a job and I was working in Lebanon, Tennessee. And it was about a, an hour and a half drive for me. And I would go to Lebanon every day and and I would get back, and I would get back very late, and I would have to get up very early. And so I came in from work one evening, and I, I sat down on the couch, and I fell asleep. Well, it was during the uh, the winter months, and so it was about 6 o'clock. It was dark outside, and I had to be on the road uh, way before 6 o'clock because I had to be at work at 6.30. And so when I kind of came to myself, I was a little groggy, I noticed the clock, it said 6 o'clock, and it was dark outside, and I said, oh no, it's 6 in the morning. You know, I mean, it just doesn't make sense, does it? I said, I'm late. And so, I didn't understand. So, what he's talking about is, when we need to wake up, right? We need to get our head clear. We need to understand exactly what's going on. We need to... Awake out of sleep. Of course, this is a spiritual stupor that Solomon is speaking of, that Paul's talking about. He's not talking about physical sleep. But Paul also commanded the Corinthians to awake or to arouse themselves out of a stupor. That's what he's talking about here. And like them, the Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.14, they were admonished to awake, awake, wake up. Arise from the dead. Now, they weren't physically dead. Boy, they were on the cusp of being spiritually dead, though, if they weren't careful. Awake from the dead. Come to yourself. Come back. And it's apparent to me that after a few nights with the pigs, his roommates, the son finally did wake up, and he began his walk back home. Now, his waking up from insanity... demonstrated something. When he woke up, he came to himself, he demonstrated repentance. Now, not just the idea that, oh, he knew he had done wrong. That's not repentance. See, we can understand that we do wrong. We can even be sorry for doing wrong. But that doesn't make it repentance, right? We have to have godly sorrow. Even godly sorrow isn't repentance. But it works repentance. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. And we know that this young man repented because he began to do something. He began his long walk home. There was a change in attitude. His will had undergone a change. His mindset had changed and his conduct had changed. See, we have to have works meet for repentance, don't we? Acts 26, verse 20. We can say that we repent all day long, but if we do not have works worthy of repentance or meet for repentance, that's not really repentance, is it? So we have to have that action, and we see that. When our attitudes will not change, our actions will not change. But we see this great change in this man. Repentance is a work that necessitates a change. So we have to understand that repentance, when we think of the gospel plan of salvation, we understand that we must hear the gospel only what God says, not the the words of men. We have to listen to the words of God. We talked about that this morning. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We understand that we must have faith. Then we understand that that this is where repentance comes in, right? The journey into self. Confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins so we can be buried with Christ in baptism, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Be united with His blood, washed of our sins, come up to walk in a new life. We understand that. And out of all of those, I believe the hardest one is repentance. The journey into self. We have to be able to do that, right? We have to show that change of attitude. It's a work. Without those changes, one is in danger of becoming hardened, Romans one twenty four. We can sin so long, and we can sin so often, and we can live in such a state of sin that we get to the point where it is impossible for us to allow ourselves to repent. Not that we couldn't repent if we made diligent effort to do that. Not that God wouldn't forgive us if we properly repented, but we won't allow ourselves to repent. And that's what Romans chapter 1, the latter part of that chapter, is talking about. But because the son repented, he did return home. He returned back to the father. Even though he had engaged in improper behavior, he did get back on the right track. I believe the emphasis of this parable at this point is that a sinner can return. We can change our lives, right? Each of us have talked to people before and they said, I've lived in such a way, I've done such terrible things, there is no way that God can forgive me. There's no way that I can be a Christian. Well, that's not true, is it? Repentance can be had. We notice that when the sheep were found... and. Brought home, Jesus said, I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. We see basically the same thing in Luke 15 verse 10. Now the word repentance is not found in the last parable, but the, the essence of it is certainly there. Let us return to the purpose of the parable. Who was he speaking with? Who was he addressing? The nation of Israel needed to get this lesson. They needed to repent. They needed to come back to God. That was the whole purpose. They looked at the publicans and the sinners with whom the Lord had engaged and they thought they needed to repent. And they bragged on themselves, Luke 18, 9-14 about how righteous they were. We recall the, the uh, parable of the publican. He goes into the to the uh, to the temple, and he won't, he won't as much as raise his eyes up to God, and he he smokes himself upon the breast. He says, "Be merciful unto me, a sinner." What does the Pharisee say? He comes in, and he looks down upon this man in a very condescending manner. He says, "God, I thank you so much. I'm not like this sorry publican. I'm so thankful that I'm so righteous. I'm so thankful that I'm so good." You know, in times past, God had made mention to Israel through the great prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7:16, that He was tired of them playing at repentance. He said, "I'm tired of it. I'm tired of you saying one thing and doing something else." Now their Babylonian captivity had prevented them from engaging in idolatry and abusing the land, but it still had not cured them totally. And the problems that we see Jesus facing, uh, John 1 verse 11 and upon which He focused here in Luke 15, was prevalent. They were still taking place and ultimately it resulted in the murder of Jesus Himself and the destruction of Jerusalem, Luke 21, 20 through 23. They would not listen. They weren't having any of it. They did not grasp the parable. He wasn't talking about publicans and sinners. See, it's Israel that needed to follow the path of the young son. It was Israel that needed to take the long journey into self. It was Israel that needed to come to themselves. And this young man was the illustration representing the publicans and the sinners of Luke 15, verse 1, or rather the Pharisees. They were the ones, the publicans and the sinners that were coming to themselves. They were the ones that wanted repentance. They were the ones that wanted God to forgive them. And we see it in those statements that He made. And we see it in a contrast of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20. The beauty of the illustration that Jesus left for us reminds us of many wonderful things. I think when He came to Himself, the young Son remembered that home is inviting. When he came to himself, I believe that he remembered that home is beautiful and it is pleasant. I believe we are reminded that when we come to ourselves, that we have to have a resolution to uh, return. We have to be resolved to do that. And I believe that we learn from this, when he finally came to himself, his return was immediate. He got up and he did something. He didn't wait until his circumstances changed. He changed his circumstances. That's a wonderful lesson for us this morning. If you found yourself in the far country of sin and you've come to yourself. Come home today. If you find yourself in the far country of sin and you realize that you haven't obeyed the gospel plan of salvation, you need to do that. We've talked about how that is accomplished. If you have come to yourself and you... Or an erring Christian and you need to make repentance, you need to come back home to the Father. Let that be known as we stand and sing.